0: We are looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17 this morning, and you'll find that on page 863 if you're using a copy of the Church Bible. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. We are continuing on in this great uh, gospel record of the physician, the beloved physician Luke, and that ordered and structured and certain account that he is giving us of Jesus and all the things that our Lord Jesus did and taught ...during his earthly ministry, and we are looking this morning at Luke seven eleven through 17. And before we do, let me pray for us briefly. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would bless the preaching of your word... ...as you have done so many times for us in the past. Our lives are so short, and your word is from everlasting to everlasting. All flesh is as grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word endures forever. And so we pray, our God, that you would send out your word... With great power, with redeeming and sanctifying grace, we ask, our God, that you would send your Holy Spirit to change us and to work in us, to show us our need for Christ and to conform us to the image of Christ, and to establish us steadfast in the faith. We do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 7, beginning in verse 11, Luke now says, soon afterward, he, that is Jesus, went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer. And the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The grass withers, The flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, Nicholas Waltersdorf, the great Christian philosopher, uh, wrote a small book called A Lament for My Son. Uh, Almost 35 years ago now, Waltersdorf lost his son Eric, who was 25 at the time, who was climbing mountains and who died in the mountains, and um, Waltersdorf, in the introduction of that book, says, The wound is no longer raw, but it has not disappeared. That is as it should be. If he was worth loving, he is worth grieving over. Grief is existential testimony to the worth of the one loved. That worth abides. So I own my grief. I do not try to put it behind me, to get over it, to forget it. I do not try to disown it. If someone asks, who are you? Tell me about yourself. I say, not immediately, but shortly, I am one who lost a son. That loss determines my identity, not all my identity, but much of it. It belongs within my story. As Woltersdorf goes on to talk about the agony of losing a child, and if you've lost a loved one, you know what that pain is. I'll never forget listening to my dad wailing as we drove to the hospital and they told him that my mom had died, that that pain of knowing that that person is never coming back, that you're never going to have fellowship with that one you love so much ever again. There's nothing like it. If you haven't lost a loved one, you don't know that pain. Um, Here, Luke tells us about a woman that knew that pain to the nth degree. Here's a woman who had lost both her husband and her only son. Here's a woman who knew more loss than most of us will know in life. Uh, Here's a woman who had no reason for hope. Here is a woman who was, humanly speaking, uh, bereft and stripped of everything that would bring her joy and comfort in life. Um, And here's a woman that meets Jesus and sees the marvelous compassion and mercy and kindness of Jesus in the midst of the grief and the hardship and the trials and the difficulties of life. Here's a woman who sees more of the heart of Jesus. Here's a woman, because of her loss, who teaches us more about Jesus as Jesus comes across the path of this woman and who deals so mercifully and kindly and compassionately and powerfully in this situation. Well, Luke has been tracing the ministry of the Lord Jesus. He has been showing us the various miracles. He has showed us the teachings of Jesus. He is honing in on the many uh, multi-variegated sides of the ministry of Jesus, the power of Jesus, Jesus bringing the kingdom of God with him. The king had come into this world. The great priest of the church had come, and he had come doing many marvelous works. The last miracle that we saw, of course, was Jesus healing the servant of the centurion who told him not even to come under his roof, but just to speak the word, and his servant would be healed. And Jesus showed his power from a distance by healing that man's servant, that beloved servant. Well, Luke is coupling this account to that account. And in every respect, these accounts are meant to go together. They are meant to go together both time-wise, chronologically. This happens immediately after. I take what Luke says here soon afterward to mean... Very closely after, as Jesus has traveled now 25 more miles into the city of Nan, and he is now exhibiting more of his power, and in a real sense, he is exhibiting greater power. You know, there may be some who think, well, you know, maybe Jesus didn't really heal that centurion servant, maybe he just got better. It's possible that that man went home and his servant was better and Jesus really had nothing to do with it. Well, uh, this is even more impossible. The dead do not rise by nature. Uh, The sick sometimes do get better. The dead do not rise by nature. And here we have another account of death. We see that great enemy, don't we? We see the same enemy that the centurion felt the pressures of, that immovable enemy, that unconquerable enemy and here this widow has felt the second attack and the second blow of this enemy on her own life with the death of her son. Well this morning we want to see three things. First we want to consider the compassionate heart of Jesus as he moves into this little town and he works this great resurrection miracle and then we want to consider the resurrection power of Jesus and finally we want to consider the restorative grace of Jesus. The compassionate heart the resurrection power, and the restorative grace. We'll notice that Luke tells us soon after he went into a town called Nain. The town is a very small town. Uh, most scholars are agreed that maybe only a few residents lived in this town. It would be like a fishing village in Ireland, perhaps. It was a very, very little place. And here in this little town, whose name means lovely, there is death, and there is loneliness, and there is a widow who has no family now. Here is a woman who has had everything taken from her in this little town. And yet, it's fascinating in a town this small, in a town with really nothing to offer, the Savior is heading with all of his divine purposes and grace. Isn't that marvelous that, that there is not a town, a place too small for the Lord Jesus to enter into? In all of his majesty, in all of his power, in all of his greatness. You know, that's a mistake I think we make in America. We think uh, bigger is better. And so wherever there are more people gathered together in the name of God, God must be doing something great. Wrong. Here Jesus goes to a very small place. And he does one of the greatest miracles in one of the most insignificant and unnoticeable places. Um, for a woman who has nothing. Um, uh, Phil Riken, talking about this woman's loss, says it was just about the saddest funeral anyone could ever imagine. This woman was a widow. She had been down this road before to bury her beloved husband. Now she was grieving again, a loss that must have seemed too great to bear. The dead man in the casket was her only son, and now she had no one left to protect her or provide for her. Of course, she knew that people were behind her, a large crowd of sympathizers, but in a very real sense, she was alone in the world. This was the death of a mother's only son. And when she buried him, she would bury a piece of her own heart. You know, Luke doesn't want you to miss the enormity of this. This woman was just stripped of everything. You know, um, we have a tendency to compare ourselves with others and to say, my situation is worse than all those people. Well, this woman's situation is worse than yours. It was worse than your situation. She had lost everything. Um, you were meant to feel that. Uh, she has no one in the society to care for her. That was the normal societal structure. This woman would be cared for now by her son because her husband had passed away. She had no provision, there's no welfare, there's no wick. There's no provision for this woman in this small little town. She can't imagine that her neighbors are going to come together and provide for her the rest of her life. She is alone. She has been stripped of everything. She is weighed down with grief. And she is mourning deeply now for the second time as she goes to bury her son. She is, and it's very interesting, she is a nameless woman. Now, we'll talk about the significance of that more in a minute. But we don't know this woman's name, nor do we know the name of her son, which is unusual because every other time Jesus either heals someone or raises someone, we know either the name of the one that is requesting that healing or the name of the individual who is healed or raised. There is this ambiguity cast over the whole account in Luke 7, 11 through 17, and yet Luke is drawing our attention to the circumstances this is, in a very real sense, this woman is a picture of anyone. This nameless woman is a picture of you or me in, in any of the losses that we might suffer in life. That's why she's nameless. We are to be able to put ourselves in there when we lose a loved one and say, I am, just like Nicholas woldersdorf could say, if you want to know something about my identity, not all my identity, I am one who lost a son. This woman stands as a picture for anyone who has suffered loss in life, who's known the awful weight of losing a loved one, having death come to somebody and strip them away from them so that they can't talk to them anymore. They can't pick up the phone and call them. That was the hardest thing for me when when my mother died. I just wanted to pick up the phone and call her. And I couldn't. And I still can. And I'll never be able to in this life. And this woman, this woman felt that loneliness and bitterness... Of death, she felt the great enemy attacking her again. And in the face of that, we have Jesus coming in in all of his messianic glory. And coming with great compassion. Notice what Luke tells us. Jesus is moving with a crowd. The woman is coming with a crowd. You have these two crowds coming together. And as Jesus is coming with his disciples. And as this woman is coming with the procession around the interment. As they are going forward to this burial. Notice verse 13. Luke says when the Lord saw her. He had compassion on her. And he said to her do not weep. Now. It's very interesting, the the most prevalent attribute that scripture tells us about Jesus is that of compassion. I don't know if you know that. I'm not talking about the sort of sentimental view of Jesus that America has for a false Jesus. I'm talking about the Jesus of scripture is a Jesus of compassion, Um. Here, here is one that at times is said to be moved with compassion. Here, Luke tells us that he has compassion on her. He sees her. She's not said anything to him. She's not called on him. She's not asked him for anything. She's not thinking about receiving her son back. She's not thinking about Jesus doing anything for her. That's going to become supremely important as we consider this together. She is not doing anything toward the Lord Jesus. He is exercising compassion toward her. He sees her, and he has compassion on her, and he says to her, do not weep. Now, if Jesus were not about to do what he was about to do, saying to her, do not weep, would be heartless. That would be cruel. Um, That's what you do when you lose a loved one, is you cry. You weep. When Stephen, the first martyr, dies in Acts chapter 8, it says that they came and they took him, the other disciples, and they lamented greatly for him. They, they mourned over the loss of this beloved brother. They lor- mourned over the loss of a loved one. You know, I've always sort of been bothered when Christians, and I know, well-meaning Christians and mature Christians say this, and they say, I want my funeral to be a party. There's something not right about that. I understand the sentiment. But in the Bible, the natural response to death is mourning. The natural response. Now, we don't mourn like those who have no hope. But we understand that death is a great enemy. And we understand that death is an immovable foe, as it were. And here Jesus comes, and he sees all of the misery, and he sees the fallenness. Imagine this. This is the God who made the world. Think about this. This is God. Jesus is God. He made the world. He made this woman. He made her son. He made everything in the world. And then he entered into the world. He took to himself a human nature. The Apostle Paul says that he humbled himself. And he, he took to himself the form of a bondservant. And the likeness of sinful flesh yet without sin. And he entered into the full human experience. And he saw all of the misery. Jesus Christ God over all saw what sin brought into the world. He faced it. He saw everything. When, when you say, and, and be very careful, not to say no one understands what I'm going through. Um, that's an extremely selfish thing to say. There are plenty who understand what we go through. Jesus saw it, and his heart was moved with compassion. The sinless one saw everything. The burden of the misery of life and the awful consequences of sin on mankind, and it moved him to compassion. You know, there's something wrong with a person who is not moved with compassion. There's something deeply wrong with someone who's so calloused or cold or indifferent than when hardship strikes and someone else's life is affected by it, that they're not in any way whatsoever moved with compassion. There's also something wrong with someone who is so undone that they can't keep themselves together in any way whatsoever. There's something wrong on both sides. Here Jesus perfectly exhibits for us what it is to have a perfect empathy and sympathy. This is the sympathetic high priest who, who in all points was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And he sees this woman's sorrow. He sees her grief. He sees her tears. This is the Jesus who wept outside of the tomb of Lazarus. This is the Jesus who would not only shed his tears, he would shed his blood. This is the Jesus who many times shed tears. And now he is saying to her, do not weep. Because as he is moved with compassion, he is going to do something to show her why she should have hope in him, in the gospel, in everything he had come into the world to do, and how he was going up against death and he was going to conquer death. Um, It really leads on to the resurrection power of Jesus, doesn't it? He comes and notice that as he addresses this nameless woman in verse 14, Luke tells us he came up, he touched the coffin, the bearer stood still, he said... Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, there are so many things here. Why does Jesus touch the coffin? Well, I think that he is doing two things. One, he is showing us that he is the Holy One of God. In uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 11, uh, God in the law said that if anyone touched the coffin of a dead person who was laying in it, they would be counted unclean. They would be ceremonially unclean, just like he touched the leper, just like he, he took all the uncleanness on himself and all the other miracles in which he associated himself with those who were unclean. Jesus is showing that he has come to conquer uncleanness. He has come to conquer the thing that causes uncleanness, death itself, sin, bringing death into the world separation, alienation, lifelessness. Jesus is showing that he has power over uncleanness, over death itself, that he is the life. He is showing that he is the life. And then in a second sense, Jesus is showing us that there are means he uses by which he again brings about life in the souls of his people. You know, this stands as a spiritual analogy, everything about this, if you've never lost a loved one, if you you, um, never do lose a loved one, maybe you'll be the first one of your loved ones to die, and you'll never experience the burden of losing a loved one. You live in a world in which men and women all around you are dead in sins and trespasses, and you by nature are dead in sins and trespasses. Um, Don't miss that. Beyond the physical Burden That this woman is bearing beyond the physical circumstances of this account, there is a spiritual reality. And that reality is that Adam brought death into this world. And all men have died spiritually and need to be raised spiritually by Jesus. And Jesus uses means. He uses gospel ministry. He uses the proclamation of the gospel. He uses the sending out of his people to bear witness. In a very real sense, it's, it's like him touching the coffin. And yet, it's not until he speaks a word to the dead man and calls that man back from death to life that this man comes back to life. Jesus, in a sense, calls to the very spirit of this man that had departed from his body and resuscitates this man and restores to him his life. Um, You know, it's very interesting. Jesus, we're told, raises three people from the dead in the Gospels, and then many rise at his own resurrection. And each time, there is an increase of power. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. The first resurrection that Jesus does is that of Jairus' daughter. And she had just died. Remember, she was sick. He was on his way. He gets stopped. By the time he gets there, they say, don't trouble the teacher. She's dead. And then the second account is this account. This man had obviously, this young man had died and... Um, had died long enough for them to get together the funeral procession and the casket and the interment prepared and they are going to bury him he has not been dead for long and then the third account is that of Lazarus who had been dead for four days remember Jesus delays going and I think the reason why you have this differential in the time periods in which these Individuals had died and Jesus goes to raise them is to show that his power is not limited by death no matter how long someone has been dead. Um, nothing limits the resurrection power of Jesus. He touches the coffin of the dead men and Phil Reichen, I love this, he says an unstoppable force was meeting a seemingly immovable object. I want you to think about this. An unstoppable force was meeting a seemingly immovable object. Here is Jesus, here is death, and the two things are meeting together. Um, Charles Spurgeon said this, I thought this was a particularly profound meditation. He said, Let death come into contact with him who is our life, and it is compelled to relax its hold. Let death come into contact with him who is our life, and it is compelled to relax its hold. That's a great thought. You know, I thought about this as I prepared this kind of a morbid sermon. Um, you, know, you could go to a lot of churches in America today and never hear about death. And you know what? It'll, it'll do you no good. Do you absolutely no good. You may get a motivational talk about how to have a better family, more happiness, to be a more productive person, to be more secure, financially stable, Whatever. But the reality is you are going to die. Everybody you know is going to die. I am going to die. And you better own up to that fact. And you better realize that there is only one who can conquer death. There is no escaping it. It is going to come. For some of you, it will come sooner than for others. Um, I've really been struck lately with the fact that you know, the only thing that keeps us alive is the breath God gives us. And, He's appointed your days. You don't know. It could be right now you could drop dead. That's it. We go through our days just thinking we're going to live forever. And we're not. This young man didn't. This woman, this widow died. Everyone in the gospel records dies. Um, you know, the story of the Bible is how God conquers death. That's, that's the thing. That's it. That's, that's what we proclaim the gospel only works against the background of the death that's been brought into this world because of sin. Um, Nancy Guthrie reminded me when we went to bury my mother, she said, when you stand by her grave, remember, you need to say, this is the place where I ask myself, do I believe that the gospel really works? Another friend of mine said to me, when you stand there, you were standing on resurrection ground because she was in Christ. You're standing on resurrection ground. Um, this is everything. You know, you could have the life you always wanted to live. Every website, every show, everybody's telling you you have the life you always want to live. I, I think I read that like on a bathroom wall recently in one of these hipster coffee shops. Like, just live the life you want to live and then you'll be happy. And then you're going to die. And then judgment. And then you've got to give an account for everything done in the body. And it's irremediable. And you can't bring anything to the table. You know, that's one of the beautiful things about this account. Um, this widow doesn't bring anything to the table for Jesus to do this. This is all grace. Jesus goes out of his way to raise this man on his own initiative. Uh, theologians have pointed out, it's very interesting, the timing is absolutely Perfect. A little longer, and this man would have been in the tomb, buried away. A little bit earlier, and he'd still be alive, and it'd be just like the miracle we read about. The timing is absolutely perfect. Jesus has been traveling 25 miles with his disciples. The crowds are coming with the young man. The two things collide. Life meets death, and he raises this man from the dead to show ultimately what he does in raising his people spiritually from the dead. Now, if we are ever to attained to the resurrection from the dead, we have to first be raised spiritually by Jesus, and we bring nothing to the table. It's all grace, all of it, 100% grace. This widow doesn't deserve it. It's not because she suffered more than others that she experiences this, though Jesus' compassion is shown large toward her. This woman hasn't been good enough to deserve Jesus coming and raising her son. Jesus has decided, I will do this to show ultimately what I have come into the world to do. And I will show you that it's entirely by grace. Now, that's the hardest thing in the world to come to. Because that means everything in you has to be stripped away. Everything you trust in has to be taken out of your hands so that you're not trusting in anything, not your intellect. Not your convictions, not your upbringing, not how long you've been in the church, not what you know, nothing. Nothing. Nothing commends us to God. Nothing. This woman has nothing, and yet she receives everything because Jesus comes and raises her son. Now, there are those that like to say, well, this is just, this is just one of those you know, metaphorical stories that the gospel writers include. These people, by the way, will not attain to the resurrection of the just because they're unbelievers. So if somebody tells you this, no, they are not going to heaven. They are not. So um, they'll say, well, this didn't really happen. Jesus didn't really raise the dead. Look at verse 22. I've always thought this was interesting. Same chapter. John the Baptist is doubting. He's in prison. He doesn't know if Jesus is the one because he knew that Jesus, the Messiah, was going to bring both judgment and salvation, and Jesus doesn't seem to be bringing judgment. He's only bringing blessing and life and restoration and healing and and resurrection. And notice Jesus points back to Isaiah 35, and in verse 22, he sends uh, John the Baptist disciples back to him in prison. He says, go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. What is Jesus doing? He's saying these are messianic signs. What he does with the widow's son, he's saying, this is a sign that points to who I am. Now, you may say, well, didn't other people in the Bible raise the dead? Yes. Remember, Elijah raises the widow's son. There's a parallel between the accounts. In in 1 Kings 17, he's staying with that widow who had the oil, and he does that miraculous uh, work of multiplying the oil for her so that she and her uh, her sons don't die. And then right after that, one of her sons dies. And remember, Elijah goes in and he stretches out across the boy and cries out to the Lord. And he says, Oh Lord, have mercy on this woman. Hear my prayer. Raise her son. And God does. And then after this, in the book of Acts, we'll see both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter raising individuals back to life again. The difference is in this. Both with the Old Testament prophets and with the apostles, in those unique redemptive historical acts in which God did a great work during that period of revelation to show that they were indeed set apart as prophets and apostles to attest to the veracity of his word, when God does that, he does that uh, mediated through their prayers to him, calling on him to do it, and Jesus does it by the word of his power. I always thought that was powerful. When Jesus does miracles, he does them from himself. He doesn't call on God to do them. He is God. He is doing them from his own divine glory and power by the Spirit by the word of his power, the same word that healed the man, the same word that the centurion said, just speak a word and my servant will be well, the same word by which he rebuked the wind and the waves and, and he cast out demons, the same word, the same powerful word, he now calls to the man in the casket and he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And here's the here's the glory of this. The man is dead. He doesn't have ears to hear. That's how the gospel works. How are people converted? The voice of the Son of God is heard by sinners who are dead in sins and trespasses, and they come back to life. That's what happened to me. And if you're a Christian, that's what's happened to you. And if you're not a Christian, that's not happened to you, and it needs to happen to you. Jesus says, the time is coming, and now is, when the dead, spiritually dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. This is an analogy, what he's doing with this man, of what he does in spiritually raising everyone that he raises from the dead and redeems in this life, by his powerful word. I'll never forget, I was working at a restaurant as a brand new Christian, and I was the only Christian there, and the employees would always make fun of me, give me a hard time, which I probably deserved from my past, let alone everything after I was converted. But um, I'll never forget this one fellow co-worker um, saying to me, and I had been witnessing, trying to witness to him. He said, yeah, you're just a sheep. And I said, well, Jesus says my sheep hear my voice and they know me. So yes, I am. Jesus says, I know my own and I call them by name and they follow me. Um, Jesus calls this man from death to life. Young man, I say to you, arise. And notice verse 15, Luke says, the dead man sat up and began to speak. That's so you know he was really risen. Uh, There was a great crowd here. This is not made up. There were lots of people. That's the point of Luke telling you there was a crowd with Jesus. There was a crowd with the people. There are early church theologians that talk about hearing this story outside of scripture. Eusebius records this story in particular. In the first century, that's amazing. You would expect people would have heard about this if it really happened. You would also expect that Luke would um, would not be highlighting, uh, as he did in the last passage, uh, such kindness to the Jews who often didn't believe in Jesus that they went at the beckoning of the centurion to Jesus, and here they are gathered together, and they are witnessing what Jesus is doing. This young man rises, and he begins to speak. And then notice Luke says Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, the last thing I want us to consider here briefly this morning is the restorative grace of Jesus. Um, We've seen the compassionate heart of Jesus, the resurrection power of Jesus, and now the restorative grace of Jesus. Um, You know, everything is really moving to this. In a sense, um, Jesus is doing this for this nameless woman who has lost everything. His compassion has led him to do this for this woman, and the end result is that she has her loved one restored to her, and God is glorified, and Jesus is shown to be who He is. It's a it's it's a win 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 for Jesus and for the woman and for the glory of God. Everyone gets something out of this. This woman um, who didn't deserve and didn't ask for and wasn't looking for and didn't think about any of these things and wasn't expecting this to happen, it wasn't even in the back of her mind that maybe this could happen, becomes the recipient of the great, magnificent grace of Jesus in the restoration of her son to her. Now, Maybe you have hard thoughts about God. You know, God is infinitely holy. You are incredibly sinful. And it's easy for us when we look at that and we think about God's justice and our sin to sometimes have hard thoughts about God rather than hard thoughts about ourselves. But if you want to see what Jesus is like, if you want to know what God is like, you look at what Jesus does here in this account. Jesus had deep compassion for this woman. It overflowed in a manifestation of his grace and restoration, which is the very thing he came into the world to do. Jesus wants to restore to his people. He came to restore life to his people. He came to reconcile his people to God. Jesus came to bring restoration. This is the one who sits on the throne in the book of Revelation that says, behold, I make all things new. That's the same Jesus. Jeff Thomas, the great Baptist minister in Wales um, said, you know, if you want to see what God is like, uh, you hear him pursuing grief-stricken Peter after Peter denied him. Um, That's what God is like in Jesus. You look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, you see the compassion of Jesus in the face of great loss, and you realize this is what the true and living God is like. And then you know what that does in turn that makes you want to go to Jesus? That makes you want to be close to the Redeemer? It makes you want to pour your heart out to him? It makes you want to draw near to him by faith? Because no other Jesus draws sinners. Now, I love when we sing, I will rise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, there are a thousand charms. I love the words of... uh, katharina von schlegel's hymn be still my soul she says and this is my favorite line be still my soul though dearest friends depart and all is darkened in the veil of tears then you will better know his love his heart who comes to soothe your sorrows and your fears be still my soul your jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away isn't that really captured in this account He is restoring of his own fullness everything he takes away. Now, you may be saying, you may be saying, well, that doesn't help me. Doesn't help you. Doesn't bring your mother back. Doesn't bring my loved one back. No, it doesn't right now. It doesn't. But it helps because there is a day of resurrection that Jesus has promised will come and everyone will rise from the dead. All the ungodly, all of the righteous, everybody's going to rise, the ungodly to the resurrection of condemnation, the just to the resurrection of eternal life and glory. That day is coming. It is hastening, and it is coming. And you don't know when it's coming. It could be today. And I don't know when it's coming. But the Bible holds it out to us. And then it holds out the Jesus that makes the difference between those who are raised to condemnation and judgment and those who are raised to life. You know, as I thought about this and thinking about where Jesus is going from here to the cross, you know, I thought there's a real sense where when Jesus touches this coffin, he is expressing solidarity with this dead only begotten son. Luke actually uses that language, the only begotten son of his mother. It's the only time that language is used in this gospel. So it's the only begotten son. And Jesus is the only begotten son of his father. And the father doesn't spare his son, but he gives him up. And he gives him up to death, so that through death he might conquer death. So that you might go up against an immovable force, and he might conquer it, and it might loosen its hold on you, and there might be resurrection hope for you, both for yourself and for those around you, and those you love who are in Jesus Christ. Now, I think Luke is telling us in this account that this is ultimately the only thing that matters. This is it. I'm going I'm to tell you, I've told you this many times in this congregation, When you leave here, you're going to be confronted with a thousand different things you think matter. And none of them matter if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have Jesus Christ, if you're not hoping in the resurrection power of Jesus. You know, when the disciples came to Jesus when he raises Lazarus and when Mary and Martha come, they they both say to Jesus, if you had been here, you could have raised our brother. So they limited the power of Jesus to time and space. That's a big mistake. Lord, if you had been here, you could have raised our brother. And, and then one of the sisters says, I know whatever you ask of God, he'll do it for you. I believe that you are, that, that I believe that you have the resurrection. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection. It's a big difference. Believing that he is able to raise the dead and that he is the resurrection. Um, That's the question this morning for you. Are you trusting in Jesus as the resurrection and the life? Are you trusting in him for your own resurrection, for the resurrection of your loved ones? You know, this has massive implications for witness because everybody around us is going to die. Everybody around us is going to stand before God on judgment day. Everybody that you see at the gym, everybody you see in the workplace, everybody you see in the office, everybody in your family, everybody you know, is going to stand before the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb on Judgment Day. And the only thing that's going to matter is if they have trusted in the Lord Jesus by his grace, have been a recipient of his grace, have already been raised up spiritually by his grace. That should compel us to be eager in 2018 about missions here in Richmond Hill, Hinesville, Savannah, here, around us. We should be eager to tell others about Jesus and to help them see the one who has power over life and death, who is the immovable force coming against an unoverthrowable overthrowable object, an unconquerable object, and conquering it. Um, let him who has ears to hear... Let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, these are weighty truths and truths that we need weighed on our minds and hearts and pressed into us. We pray, our God, that you would help us to come face to face with our own frailty, with the temporality of our lives, with the inevitability of our deaths. We pray, our God, that instead of viewing those things as morbid, we would see those things as our greatest need and the platform for the grace and the power and the compassion of your son. And so Lord Jesus, we call on you. We pray that you would exercise the same compassion. We pray for those who have lost loved ones, that you would give them the hope of the resurrection. We pray for those of us who you have already raised from death to life, that you would send us from this place to be bold witnesses to that resurrection. And we pray our God that you would, Have mercy on those who do not know you and that you would bring them from death to life even this day. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make all of us to hear your voice. We pray that you would make us to know your grace and your great compassion. We pray these things in your name. Amen.